the subject of the talk tonight is karma and the end of karma. It's an interesting um, concept in modern times because it's a word that's entered our vocabulary, at least in English and probably most uh, European languages, but it's not very well understood um, in modern societies, uh, in non-Buddhist cultures. A group of Western teachers were meeting with the Dalai Lama some years ago. He used to hold meetings in Dharamsala um, once a year. And in the course of the discussions, they were talking about this topic of karma. And the Dalai Lama told the Western teachers that he thought it was more important for them to teach about karma than to teach about emptiness. Now, as someone who's written a book on emptiness, I found this a little hard to take in. <laughs> but I tend to agree. It's, a, it's more immediately practical. And so that's what I want to talk about uh, tonight. I'm going to talk about things uh, that the Buddha taught about karma. And at the very start, I'll say that I'm not able to verify all that he taught. But I figured... I need to share it with you anyway. Not that you should believe it, but I think it might be useful to consider. So, you can make of it what you will, but I think it's important that you hear what the Buddha had to say um, about this topic. Because I think if we understand it correctly, karma can be our best friend. So, it has a lot of aspects. Uh, And I'm going to talk about it in four different areas. I'm going to talk about karma itself, the results of karma, the relation to not-self, and the relation to um, rebirth. And at the end, we'll talk about the end of karma. I guess it's five. So what is the meaning of karma? It's a simple word that in Sanskrit just means action. The Pali word is kama, with two M's. And it was just a common word in the Buddha's time that all the philosophical schools debated about. Every teacher had their own take on what karma was and what it involved. And some, some teachers said that actions didn't matter. They don't have consequences beyond um, the immediate moment. Some people said... Uh, there are results and after-effects of karma. Some people said you could go out and kill somebody and it wouldn't have any impact in your life following. Some people said actions were predetermined or that God determined all the actions that were happening. So there were all these different views around and the Buddha had his own definition of karma, which was a new definition at the time, when he said, it is volition, bhikkhus, that I call kama, for having willed, one acts by body, speech, or mind. So this notion of putting the motivation at the center of the meaning of action was the Buddha's contribution. That was the new information that he offered as part of his teaching. And we've talked quite a bit about this factor of volition intention or urge or will or motive or, or motivation. It's talking about the, the energy or the mind states that actions come from. So actions are judged to be either wholesome or unwholesome depending on the motivation behind them. Unwholesome motivation, as you probably know, comes from uh, forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. Wholesome motivation comes from their opposites, qualities of generosity, loving-kindness, and wisdom. The Buddha actually called these three forces the roots of the unwholesome and the roots of the wholesome. They are where all action springs, either in a positive way or, or in a negative way. So it's not the act per se, but it's the motivation behind it. For instance, if I said to you, someone was just observed cutting someone's stomach open with a sharp knife, is that a good act or a bad act? (laughs) Depends. If it was a robber who was holding someone up to steal their money, that's a very unwholesome act. But if it was a surgeon preparing to 
heal somebody's appendix, for example, it'd be a very wholesome act. So the act itself is not the determiner, it's the motivation. Or if a baby is sleeping on a bed at home, rolls over, knocks over a candle, and the candle sets the house on fire, there's no blame. There was no intention in that action. So no blame or unwholesome karma for that particular act. But it is interesting that according to the Buddha, actions have a moral force based on what the intention was. So we'll come back to this later. The other thing you'll notice in this definition, actions take place in three spheres, body, speech, and mind. So of course we think of physical action as action. We think of verbal action as action. We're not often used to thinking of mental action as action. But in the Buddha's teaching, even thoughts and emotions have a force that comes out of their volition, out of their intention. Fortunately for us, the Buddha was really clear about what the unwholesome actions are. He made a list, he passed them on. It's something really helpful to reflect on and to learn about. So he broke these down into 10 unwholesome actions of body, speech, and mind. The unwholesome actions of body, you're going to recognize these. Killing living beings, taking what is not given, and sexual misconduct. So these form the first three of our five lay precepts. The actions of speech, the first wrong action is false speech. So you recognize this as the fourth of our lay precepts. And then there are three other actions of speech that are unskillful. Using harsh speech, which basically means angry speech. Divisive speech, which means to speak badly of someone to a third person, to turn that person's mind against the other person. And wasting time in idle chatter and gossip. Does this go on on the internet? A little bit. And then he talked about three actions of mind that are not skillful. Covetousness, wanting what belongs to someone else, ill will or hostility, and wrong view. This is an interesting one. Wrong view says if we misunderstand the way reality is or the way it works, we're going to act based on our misunderstanding and we're going to end up hurting ourselves or others, adding to the suffering in the world. So another way to say wrong view is ignorance. When there's ignorance in the mind, we act in unskillful ways. The ten wholesome actions are to refrain from these. It's in just like a lot of things. The Buddha put a lot of things in the negative way. So the wholesome actions are to refrain from the unwholesome. But then there are also a lot of wholesome actions that are built upon generosity and loving kindness, that you could extend this list a lot. But he basically said, look, if you keep from doing the 10 unwholesome things, you're on a good track. So the teachings on um, karma are especially important when we're out in the world in relationship. And half half of this group will soon be back in the world and in relationship. And for the rest of us, this is a or in retreat, this is a useful time to contemplate action in the world. But the teachings on karma become really important when we're in contact with others and we're acting in a way that is, is wider. So we aspire as practitioners to always act from the wholesome roots, to always act from generosity, kindness, and wisdom. But we also know our minds aren't always in generous, loving, wise places. So we aspire to that, but we can't actually control it yet. So that's why the path of um, meditation, the bhavana aspect, the mental purification, is so helpful to our overall development on the path. As our minds and hearts become purified, then our actions naturally spring from the wholesome motives. And there are, lots of, um, there are lots of beautiful examples of this. There are these people who really exemplify 
what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. There's a great joy in being able to look back over one's actions and feel good about one's conduct. So somebody who really exemplifies that for me is the Dalai Lama. So some years ago, he was sitting down for an interview with Oprah Winfrey. And you all probably know that she has a magazine called O, which is quite popular. And she's done more than anybody else I can think of in, in the modern age to bring a kind of wide view of spirituality to a very broad audience. So this has been one of her main interests, I think, in her speaking and in her literature and her TV network. And it's a beautiful thing to offer. So she was doing an interview with the Dalai Lama to be put into uh, the magazine O. And so she started um, by asking the Dalai Lama, have you ever had to forgive yourself for anything? The Dalai Lama replied, small incidents like accidentally killing an insect. Killing an insect, Oprah said. Hmm, okay. The Dalai Lama continued. My attitude, attitude toward mosquitoes is not very favorable. <laughs> not very peaceful. Bed bugs also. And that's it? Oprah couldn't quite believe what she was hearing. In your lifetime, that's what you have to forgive yourself for? Small mistakes every day, maybe, the Dalai Lama said evenly. But major mistakes, it seems, no. No major mistakes, Oprah repeated, mulling over the idea. She fell silent and looked out the window. There was awe in her voice when she finally continued, you have nothing in life that you have regrets about. That's a great life, to have no regrets. Regarding service to Tibet, the Dalai Lama said, service to Buddhism, service to humanity, I have done as much as I can. Regarding my own spiritual practice, when I share my experiences with more advanced meditators, even those who have spent years in the mountains practicing single-pointedness of mind, I don't lag too far behind. (laughs) That's a beautiful mind. And you know, some of that um, peacefulness and depth of meditation is related to his pure conduct in the world. Because if we are not, you know, if we are doing unskillful things in the world, it will continue to stir up our minds and we won't be settled into meditation. So he is somebody who really exemplifies both of these uh, beautiful qualities. So that leads into the results of action, and the Pali term for this is vipaka. And the basic teaching, as you all know, is that wholesome actions lead to wholesome results, that is, results that make us happy. Unwholesome actions lead to unwholesome results, that is, things that make us unhappy. And this was said uh, by the Buddha in the very start of the Dhammapada. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with an impure mind, and sorrow will follow you like the wheel of the cart follows the oxen. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you like your shadow, unshakable. So some years ago, a friend and I were teaching a meditation class at a juvenile hall in the Bay Area. And it came about, this was, I think, the first of its kind that I know of in the juvenile halls. Um, It came about because one of the people who worked in the juvenile hall was a meditator and had invited us because she thought it might be useful to to the guys who were there. So we were invited into the kind of maximum security wing. And... For those of you who don't know the U.S. system, a juvenile hall is where people who are placed who are under 18 but who are awaiting trial on um, serious charges. So the kids were in there for things in the maximum security unit. They were in there for things like robbery and armed robbery and assault with a deadly weapon and murder. So it was fairly serious stuff. They're all under 18, and they're, 
incarcerated, waiting for a trial that could determine years in prison or being released back to their homes. So you can imagine these these young guys were in a state of a lot of anxiety, and there was also you know not a small amount of aggression, you know, within the unit that they were situated in. So my friend and I thought, what we're going to go in as two middle-aged white guys, and we're going to teach these young men about the Dharma. You know, is this going to work? But so we just went in and presented um, a straightforward approach to meditation by focusing on the breath and then opening up to body sensations and talking about how to work with the emotions. And for them, I think this was um, as entertaining an hour as they had in their week. So they didn't resist coming. And we were, you know, it was kind of workable because one of their um, probation officers sat in the class with us. And he was a big, solid guy. And we knew that they weren't going to give him any trouble. So we felt that was going to be good. So then we got to the part on working with difficult emotions. And for me, this is really where the meditation came to life. Because cooped up, not knowing what the future of their lives were going to be, they suddenly had a way to look at their fear look at their anger, and find ways to work with it. So we saw some, you know, quite, uh, what I would say, remarkable connections to the practice among these young guys. And they found, you know, they really found it useful. So we got to the end of the class. It was graduation class. We'd made up a certificate for them, certificate of graduation from mindfulness training. And we thought, okay, this is going to be our last time to meet with them. Should we talk about karma? I thought, well, I don't know. That might be a little too speculative or a little too heavy or something. But the last time we'll ever get a chance to talk to them, I think we should do it. So we did it. And what we did was we presented karma as the science of happiness. If you want to be happy, this is what to do. And we gave a little bit of a rap on karma, and I said to them, does this make sense to you? Does this connect in any way? And one guy put up his hand and he said, oh, you mean what goes around comes around? (laughs) Sure, of course, that makes sense. So it was just interesting to see how, you know, far into the culture, this idea, this basic idea has taken hold without a deep understanding, but the basic idea had taken hold. So at the end of the class, we handed out the certificates, and one of the guys took his certificate and said, can I take this to the judge? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, you know, I hope it will work. (laughs) So, the Tibetans have a way of expressing the four Brahmaviharas, they call them the four immeasurables, and they have phrases for metta and compassion, and the phrase for metta is, May all beings have happiness and the cause of happiness, which is virtue. And the phrase for compassion is, May all beings be free from sorrow and the cause of sorrow, which is non-virtue. So just like the Dhammapada, this ties happiness and unhappiness to the purity of one's actions. The Buddha put it like this, Beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. Their actions are the womb from which they are born. Their actions are their friend, their refuge. Whatever acts they perform for good or for ill, of that they will be the heirs. Their actions are the wombs from which they are born. So, according to the Buddha's teachings, this was a direct insight of his. This was not a speculative view, unlike the other views of the philosophers of the time. This was something he saw directly um, through his special abilities. And according to his understanding, this teaching, this law applies whether you believe it or not. This teaching applies whether you know it or not. It applies whether your religion believes it or not. 
and it applies whether your culture believes it or not. It's a universal law. So it applies to all beings based on their actions. But I will also say that our growth in the path really depends on this law. And we'll get to that a little later. So this reflection, all beings are the owners of their karma, provides the basis for the equanimity meditation in the classical terms that it's come down to us in. Jill talked about an equanimity meditation as her overview of the four Brahmaviharas. And in the classical teachings, going back you know, over a thousand years, the phrase for equanimity is all beings are the heirs to their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depend on their past actions. And we might modify it a little bit saying, depend on their past actions more than on my wishes for them. There was this touching scene. Did some of you see the movie Kundun? It was a Scorsese film about the Dalai Lama's life. I mean, he brought a beautiful sensibility to a culture that was not his own biography of the Dalai Lama. And at one point, he shows the Dalai Lama still living in the Potala Palace in Lhasa. And he's being trained by tutors. You know, some of the best minds of that country were offered to him to provide his upbringing and instruction. And so Scorsese puts in this scene where his tutors are instructing him on the Four Noble Truths. And they ask him to restate the Second Noble Truth in his own terms. And so he says, you know, he says, the cause of suffering is craving. You know, that is the formal statement of the second noble truth, the way the Buddha said it. And his tutors go, uh, put it in your own terms. Don't, don't just give us a statement. Get, put it in your own terms. So I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember the movie exactly. But, and then he says something like, um, suffering comes from wanting things. <laughs> and his tutors say, no, that's not personal enough. Give me, give me a statement of it in your own terms. And so he, boy, he's like eight or nine years old at this point. He closes his eyes and he thinks for a minute. And then he comes out and he says, most of my suffering comes from my own habits of mind. The tutors go, very good. <laughs> very good. Most of our suffering comes from our own habits of mind. We may wish to direct it onto other figures in our life, in our present circumstances. Most of our suffering comes from our own habits of mind. And this is the core reflection about karma. All beings are heirs to their karma. Another way you could say it is their happiness and unhappiness (laughs) depend on their own habits of mind. Now, I want to say that it doesn't depend entirely on one's past actions or one's past habits of mind. It doesn't really hold up, for me anyway, that way. Um, I think about the children who have been dying in Syria when hospitals are bombed, the government is bombing its own citizens. I find it really difficult to believe that all those children are dying because of their past actions. I just personally don't believe that. So one of the things the Buddha said is we can't figure out the details of the workings of karma, how certain results came about based on past actions. It's considered one of the four imponderables. The four things the Buddha said you can't figure out by thinking. The details of the workings of karma, the range of the mind of a Buddha, the power of a concentrated mind and the beginnings of things. I think he should share that with all the cosmologists. (laughs) What he says is, you'll go mad and experience vexation if you try to figure this out. I'm not sure which comes first. So, you know, I don't know if you've seen this in your life, but I've certainly seen it. Someone gets ill and a friend comes to them and says, oh, that must be your karma. That is... It's such a not nice thing to say. 
And nobody knows. That's just a speculative view. It's not a kind thing to say. And it's not in any way necessarily true. The Buddha never said that everything that happens to us is based on our past actions. He was invited to say that at one time. Somebody came to him and put forward this view and they said, other teachers say that. Would you say this is true? And he said, that's wrong to say. And he identified several other causes that lead to uh, circumstances in our life. And he mentioned um, illness, diet, climate, accident, assault. All these things could result in painful situations in our life. So he explicitly said, you can't go around saying that everything that happens is the result of past karma. So the way I think about it is that there are lots of laws at work in our universe. There are physical laws, there are chemical laws, biological laws, psychological laws, and there are karmic laws. So all these things have a place to play in this universe, and karma is not like supreme, you know, above all of them. They're all going on. So we, we need to take this teaching in broad terms that as we act from wholesome motives, wholesome things will come back into our lives. As we act from unwholesome motives, unwholesome things will come back into our lives. But what we can't do is take our present situation and try to say, wow, I'm suffering now. What did I do in the past that made this happen? Maybe the Buddha could have seen that, but you and I can't. So to try and look in that way is just speculation. And it generally doesn't make us much happier. So this is trying to use karma as a rearview mirror. You know, here I am, how did I get here? Oh, let's look in the past. We don't have that ability, so I wouldn't even bother. The main way to use karma is as a future GPS system. You want to go toward happiness? Here's the path. Turn right here. Turn left there. Karma will tell us what to do to aim toward happiness in the future. But it doesn't really tell us how we got to where we are now. Many, many things came, have come into play. So those of us who have been brought up in um, modern cultures based on science, maybe based on democratic ideals, often have a strong resistance to this teaching. And maybe it's because it says that we're to some extent responsible for our own happiness. You know, maybe we have a democratic ideal that we should all be equally happy. And so from the light of our view, this view might which says we're to some extent responsible for our happiness, might seem cold, might seem cruel, might seem heartless. And sometimes people think there's an implication, oh, if somebody's suffering, that means they deserve to suffer because it came out of their past actions. This deserving to suffer is not at all in the Buddha's teaching on karma. And I'm 100% convinced that if he could have gone around to the most hardened criminals of his day and take out all the suffering in their lives, he would have done that. But he didn't have that ability. But there is one story that kind of illustrates this attitude, and that is when he met Angulimala. Angulimala, under direction from a misguided teacher, had killed 999 individuals on the road to killing a 1,000 and was collecting a finger off each person to prove that he had killed them. So he was up to his 1,000th victim and he decided to make it the Buddha. So the Buddha was walking on this mountain path and his friend said, don't go that way. The killer Angulimala is hiding up in those hills and he's going to kill you. And the Buddha said, I don't think so. <laughs> and so he just kept walking and then Angulimala swooped down on the path went to attack the Buddha and ran after him with a knife in his hand but the Buddha kept walking and Angulimala couldn't catch him and so finally Angulimala yelled out stop, stop 
And the Buddha just turned around and calmly said, I have stopped Angulimala, but you have not stopped. And at that point, Angulimala thought, whoa, this person is coming from a different place. (laughs) And so he basically said, you know, what's up with you? And the Buddha gave him the teaching. And he converted Angulimala on the spot. Angulimala then gave up wanting to kill his thousandth victim, came to practice with the Buddha, and as a lot of these stories go, became fully awakened in a fairly short period of time. (laughs) So, here was a serial killer of his time. The Buddha didn't say, you should suffer, I'm going to turn my back on you and walk away, good luck. He taught him release from all suffering. It's interesting When Angulimala went out for alms round in the nearby villages after he had ordained, people stoned him because they knew that he had been a killer. And I don't doesn't say this, but perhaps um, some of the victims were family members of the villagers. I don't know, but they knew of his history and they stoned him. He came back to the Buddha and said, "Bonte, they're stoning me." And the Buddha said, "Bear it, my friend, because." If you had not practiced and become awakened, your suffering would have been a lot worse than this due to the teachings on karma that he had become awakened. So it's not about deserving to suffer. It's just a law. So expecting that we can do something unskillful, something hurtful, and not have any consequences come back to us would be like expecting the law of gravity not to operate. It would be like expecting an apple to ripen and come off its stem and not fall to the ground. Gravity operates. Karma operates. This is the universe that we live in. We can't stop these laws. And then hearing the equanimity phrase, some people think it's an excuse not to care. Oh, beings are owners of their actions. Their habits of mind brought this suffering upon them. So I don't need to care. That's, that's your problem. It's not my problem. That's not equanimity. That's the near enemy of equanimity, which I think Jill talked about, which is indifference. Uncaring. Compassion doesn't really care what the source of the suffering was. Compassion wants to alleviate anyone's suffering. And the roots of suffering are from a lot of different areas. We'll get into in a moment. So, if equanimity practice, this reflection on karma, leads to indifference, the way to counter it is to boost the um, power of metta and compassion. Bring metta and compassion into the person that you're feeling indifferent toward, and that will suffuse the equanimity with these very caring Brahmaviharas. Really, we want all four Brahmaviharas to be able to awake in our hearts together not just one. So, the results of action come in at least six ways. Three of them Carol talked about in her talk on generosity. Do you remember that she talked about when you're about to give, you have a certain wholesome feeling? In the act of giving, you have a wholesome feeling. And in reflecting on your giving, you have a wholesome feeling. So in this way, our actions come alive in three different times. Before we do the action, while we're doing the action, and after we reflect on the action. This is true of all our acts. So these are three ways that we can feel the impact of an action, any action that, that we do. The fourth way that they come back is our actions affect the way that people relate to us. So if we relate to people from friendliness, from warmth, from care, from interest, then they respond to us in that same way. If we relate to people from not caring, from lack of interest, from hostility or criticism, then people will shrink back from us and not really want to approach So this is the fourth way our actions come back. The fifth way is in habitual states of mind. 
Why does the mind move when you're in meditation? And where does it go? It's just reflecting habit patterns. Our minds move into areas where we've invested energy, into areas where it's gone before. This is from the Buddha. Because whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of their mind. If they frequently think and ponder upon thoughts of sense desire, ill will, and cruelty, then their mind inclines to thoughts of sense desire, ill will, and cruelty. If they frequently think and ponder upon thoughts of generosity, kindness, and compassion, then their mind inclines to thoughts of generosity, kindness, and compassion. So basically, through our patterns of thinking, we wear a groove in the mind. And that gets played out again and again and again. There's this very nice quote that's often attributed to the Buddha. I haven't found it anywhere in the Buddha's teachings, but he might have said it. And it's a very nice quote. The thought becomes an intention. The intention manifests as an action. The action develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. Therefore, watch closely the thought and let it spring from love for all beings. So this is just attending to our habits of mind and keeping them in a wholesome track. One of the facts of life is that some of our habits of mind kind of got put there by forces outside of ourselves. And then we are left to replay them somewhat... um, involuntarily. So instances like childhood abuse, instances of societal racism, instances of early trauma or traumatic loss go in so deeply before children have a chance to know what's happening or how to work that they kind of get programmed before we have any awareness of them. And then when we come into meditation, we find, oh, these are the habit patterns of mind that I have to work with now. And even though we didn't request them, and even though we certainly wouldn't have chosen them, they are what we bring into meditation. And these are the things we have to work with. So as adults, we kind of recognize these are the habits of mind I've gotten. Whether that's fair or not, these are the habits of mind that I need to understand and transform. So that's five ways karma shows up. And the sixth is the tricky one. The Buddha said that the results of our actions will show up in mysterious ways in the future, in ways we can't really understand. They may play out in this life. They may play out in some future life. And there's no way to know exactly how that's going to work. The detailed workings of karma are an imponderable. But even the basics, the basic teaching that virtue brings happiness, how does that work? That's the basic teaching of karma. Virtue brings happiness. How does that work? That's a mystery. And what it really says is morality is not just an invention of the rational mind. Morality is woven into the very fabric of the universe through this law on karma. So originally, we may have thought that karma was a cold and heartless teaching because it put too much on personal responsibility. But when I look at it, karma infuses our universe with a moral core. The universe is fundamentally a moral place because the law of karma operates for all beings in this universe. So to me, this is the caring view. This is the heartful view of the world. I wouldn't really care to live in a universe that didn't have this moral dimension as part of its basis. But the universe we're in has this dimension. So the next piece to look at is how karma relates to rebirth. 
And again, you know, I can't verify all the Buddha's teachings on karma, and I can't verify the Buddha's teachings on rebirth. But I have had teachers who felt they could verify some of these. So um, I believe some of it is empirically verifiable. Um, I'm just not there yet. But what I would say is, if you have a very skeptical attitude toward these two, that's fine. We aren't asking that you believe in either karma or rebirth. But I would also say, what about keeping an open mind to the possibility? You don't have to believe, but if you move into denial and say it's not true, how do you know that? So often we just find, you know, I don't believe in it because I don't want to believe in it. But the scientific approach is to hold it as a hypothesis and examine it over years, see what your experience is, the experience of friends, and when you die, see where you wake up. (laughs) (laughs) These are things you can explore for a long time. So basically, the, um, the teaching on rebirth says that the actions that we follow through with in this life will affect our next birth. And the Buddha goes through some kind of general outlines of how this would play out. He said something like, those who are generous um, in a birth at some point in the future will experience abundance in their life. Those who are kind to living beings at some point in the future will experience good health in this life or another life. Those who inquire deeply when they're around wise teachers will experience wisdom in their their future life. So this is part of the meaning of karma being the womb from which we're born. So this is another of the teachings on, on this. Grain, possessions, money. You realize this comes from an agricultural society 2,500 years ago. Grain, possessions, money, all the things you love, workers, family, and dependents, none of these can you take with you. You must cast them all aside. But whatever comma is made by you, whether by body, speech, or mind, that is your real possession. That is your real possession, and you must fare according to that comma. That comma will follow you, just as the shadow follows its owner. Therefore, do good actions, gather benefit for the future. Goodness is the mainstay of beings after death. Your actions are your real possessions. They're the womb from which you will be born. Maybe you don't believe in this, but what if it happens to turn out to be true? Wouldn't you like to act in accordance with it? And if it turns out not to be true, but you had simply lived a good life, that wouldn't be a bad outcome either. So there's a whole discourse in the Majjhima Nikaya number 60 where the Buddha outlines this reason for basically believing in karma and rebirth. So rebirth can also be understood as a moment-to-moment process. It's not the only way the Buddha meant it, but it is there in the suttas also. So we are changing from moment to moment. A new sense of self is being born many times during a day, conditioned by the previous senses of self. So this is going on all the time. One of the criticisms of rebirth is, isn't there some some lasting thing in a being that would have to be reborn in order for that continuity to take place? And the answer to that is no. Just as there is no lasting thing in you that goes from moment to moment to moment, and yet a consistent personality shows up moment after moment after moment, more or less, right? You don't go to bed and wake up as Deepama (laughs) the next day. There's some consistent personality that wakes up the next morning that is you. So in the same way, there's some consistency that goes after death into the next birth that carries some of these karmic patterns, but there's not a fixed thing that continues or endures.
One moment conditions the next, conditions the next, conditions the next. That's how it happens in this life. That's how it happens into the next birth. Ajahn Amaro had a nice way of saying this. He said, the process of going from one life to the next is not very different from the process of going from one moment to the next. It's a nice one to reflect on. So then we come to the question of karma and not-self. Because these two can seem contradictory. You know, if there's no self, then who is affected by the actions, by the results of karma? In fact, one of the bhikkhus at the time of the Buddha asked the same question. The bhikkhus was in front of the Buddha and said, what self then will actions performed by the not-self affect? That is basically that question. And the Buddha said, you haven't been listening to me. And he didn't decline it, didn't answer it any further. But let, let's look. <laughs> you haven't been listening. But let's look into it a little more. Remembering that not-self doesn't deny individuality. Each of us is a unique being. It's just there's nothing fixed in the center of it. There's no core, there's no observer. So an analogy that's often used is a stream. So you could walk down to Gaston Pond, not today, maybe not tomorrow, but one of these days it will be cleared, it will be safe to walk to Gaston Pond, and take a look at the stream that flows out you know, on the, the north end of the pond. And that has certain characteristics. You know, it's, it's relatively small, it runs fairly fast, it's pretty clear water, can see it tumbling downhill. So it's a stream, but if you stand on the edge of it and you look down, what is a stream? A stream. It's flowing water. Is there anything fixed in it? No. You never step into the same river twice, as the old philosopher said. It's just a changing flow, but it has a pattern. That stream has certain characteristics. If you drive west of here for about 45 minutes, you'll cross the Connecticut River. And when you cross the Connecticut River, that is also a stream of a very different nature. It's broad, it's slow, it's kind of muddy. It looks really different than the Gaston Pond stream, but they're both streams with individual characteristics and we can give them names. So in Buddhist understanding, each of us is a stream particularly we're considered to be or to have a mind stream. So there is a flowing river of thoughts and feelings and perceptions and views and opinions and likes and dislikes and warmth and coolness and generosity and not that run through us, changing moment by moment. And yet there's a kind of consistent pattern to that, which is what we call somebody's personality. And each of us has a unique way of showing up in the world based on the particular mix of all these qualities that go through our mind stream. So it's always changing, nothing is fixed, and yet each of us, the combination of patterns is is unique. And this is what we call a personality. So personality, I would say, are the ways that people think and speak and act and feel. Does this sound like karma? Thinking, feeling, speaking, and acting. This is what constitutes the field of action. So personality is basically our karmic stream that's been running you know, by our conditioned habits of mind for a long time. Personality may be consistent, but it's not solid. It's not fixed. Although personality isn't fixed, do you find it easy to change? Part of the understanding of practice, isn't it? Changing our habits of mind is not that easy because they have a lot of momentum. The Buddha would say lifetimes of momentum behind these habits of mind. So this is a quote, another quote from the Buddha. Here, um, I'm using the word action, but it's the word the Buddha used was kama. Same, same meaning. 
Action makes the world go round. Action makes this generation turn. Living beings are bound by action like the chariot wheel by the pin. Living beings are bound by karma like the chariot wheel by the pin. It's the habitual momentum that the Buddha is pointing to here. It's not easy to shift this momentum that we've been cultivating over at least decades, you know, if not longer. But the point of practice is to transform it, to transform the unskillful tendencies of mind into wholesome habits of mind. And as you all know, it's hard work. It doesn't happen overnight. So the good news is nothing in our mind stream is fixed. That's the teaching of not-self, and that's what makes the transformation possible. Our ignorance is not fixed. Craving is not fixed. Greed, aversion, delusion are not fixed. They're all mutable. They're all capable of being transformed. The difficulty is they're strong karmic patterns. So Dharma practice uses the principle of karma to transform karma. We're using karma to change karma. So how does that work? So we come into practice. I know when I came into practice, I had a lot, a lot of unwholesome habits of mine. They felt pretty compulsive. The greed, the anger, the reactivity, the confusion was just playing out over and over. When I came into practice, so my mind stream was going in a certain direction. And the way I describe this direction is imagine a lake designed by M.C. Escher (laughs) where the outflow from the lake wraps around and goes into the source of the lake. Do you get that? What flows out is the same thing that flows back in and fills the lake again. We call that lake samsara (laughs) because it just keeps cycling over and over and over the same stuff. You know, the fear, the confusion, the anger, the greed, etc. Now, Dharma practice comes in. Dharma practice is like a tributary coming from a different direction with a different content of the stream. So Dharma practice comes in and all of a sudden the volitions are changing. It's not just greed, aversion, and delusion. It's mindfulness, loving kindness, generosity, wisdom, equanimity, compassion, patience. All the beautiful qualities start to come in. That changes the karmic makeup of the stream. And as we change the karmic makeup of the stream, it starts to head in a new direction. It's no longer cycling back into Lake Samsara. Now it's flowing to the Nibbanic Ocean. (laughs) (laughs) So whether you thought you wanted to go there or not, that's where you're going. I tell you this in the spirit of Yogi Berra, who said, if you don't know where you're going, you could end up somewhere else. But now you know. You're going to the Nibbanic Ocean. And the reason that's possible is because there's nothing fixed in here. Those old karmic patterns that were directing the stream don't have to stay there because the new karmic patterns of the Dharma start to shift us into a different direction. They can liberate because none of the old patterns are fixed. None of them are fixed. Ignorance, Craving, clinging, grasping, becoming, these can all be uprooted. So, karma is really what explains the development of the path. It's the karmic power of the intentions that we put into each moment of our Dharma practice that starts to reshape us and that brings, you know, so much greater happiness into our lives. And as we look into this factor of intention, we see how how critical it is and how hugely important it is in practice. I would say it's the only real tool we have for change. 
Because here we are as human beings, we are all on the same situation. We're afloat on a changing sea of circumstances that is unpredictable, chaotic, always changing. We look at the mind, we look at the world, same thing. Change, impermanence, fluctuation, not subject to very much reason, unpredictable, often chaotic. We only really have one way to steer on this ocean, and that's with our intention. So we're on this boat, on this changing, vast ocean of life with so many unpredictable things happening. The rudder of that boat is our intention. That is how we steer to a safe harbor. And we just keep putting our intention behind those wholesome factors of the path, and that's what takes us to safety. It's the only reliable rudder that we've got. The intentions of mindfulness, loving kindness, generosity, compassion, non-harming, and so on. This is a, um, a dialogue from a teacher called uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj. He was an Advaita Vedanta teacher in, uh, in Bombay. And he mostly worked in uh, dialogue with people. So one student came to him and said um, he wanted to talk about um, transformation and, and destiny. And Maharaj said, well, your own will has been the backbone of your destiny. And the student said, well, surely karma interfered. And Maharaj replied, karma shapes the circumstances of your life, but the attitudes are your own. Ultimately, your character shapes your life, and you alone can shape your character. I love this statement. Your character shapes your life, and you alone can shape your character. That's what we're doing here. We're shaping our character. And we're shaping it in a way that only leads in one direction. It leads to peace and release and nibbana. So the Buddha said that when one becomes fully awakened, there's no more generation of karma. It doesn't mean that one stops acting, but no new karma is being created. And that's what he called the end of karma. And he said, what action is neither painful nor bright, with neither painful nor bright results, which leads to the end of action? And he said, it is this noble eightfold path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And essentially, it is the letting go of all of our self-centered activities. All of our activities that are just about the small me and our small desires and small aversions. By letting that go and trusting the stream of Dharma to carry us, in a way, I would say, by stopping doing so much, we are carried along by wholesome intentions to that final freedom and final awakening. So again, as the Buddha put it, it is this noble eightfold path that is the way leading to the cessation of karma, leading to the full awakening and release from suffering. So let's just sit for a moment together. Karma shapes the circumstances of your life. The attitudes are your own. Ultimately, your character shapes your life, and you alone can shape your character.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.